Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. This is the second part of Aruna Roy's story. If you haven't listened to the first part, we recommend you do so. In the first episode, we heard Aruna speak about her early life and upbringing and then her career with the Indian Administrative Service and how she left the IAS at the age of 28 to move to Tilonia village in Rajasthan to work at the Social Work Research Center. She developed deep friendships with the women of Tilonia and equally learned from them. In this episode, Aruna speaks about her move to Devdungri in 1987 to live by the values of Sangharsh or struggle in the search for a way to work for the betterment of society through collective action and citizen participation. The first few years were spent learning how to live with the hardships of rural life. It was here that Aruna grappled with earning the trust of the people of Devdungri. Along with her colleagues Shankar Singh and Nikhil Dey, Aruna founded the Mazdoor Kisan Seva Sangathan or MKSS in 1990 where they relied on the mobilization of collective action in order to secure the rights of the rural poor. Aruna Roy is in conversation with her long-time friend and associate journalist and curator of ahimsa conversations rajni bakshi and now back to aruna roy and rajni bakshi so aruna now i'm going to go back to the decision to step out of swrc and move to devdungri which is when we first met you had just moved to devdungri and the house was also still being no it was built uh, it was built but it was still being kind of finishing touches the the famous mud hut of devdungri so can you just walk us through that decision i mean because you were doing very creative work at swrc and yet some restlessness crept in which took you to devdungri what was that no 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 there was no restlessness just clear hard thinking let me go back to gandhi he spoke about seva sangharsh and nirman let's put it like this that after my association and relationship with wages women struggles looking at issues i felt and i still believe that real change comes from sangharsh others you make far more compromises so sangharsh is struggle so if swrc telonia barefoot college was nirman which was development then i was sangharsh it didn't make any sense to stay there and fight every day about every process whether it should be this or that this or that this or that it was tiring so i made up my mind 3 years before i left swrc that i was leaving and i owe much of this final clarity to dunu roy who told me that forget it i thought we could coexist it will never coexist i said nahi nahi it can coexist he said kuch nahi hoga you cannot coexist and when i thought about it i realized the same sets of people you pull them in two different directions they may in fact be involved in both sets of activities but at the time of their choice not when you're pulling them in two forces or pulling them apart you ruin everything so i just decided to quit so simplest definition is that and so clean break and start afresh thing is rajni i just don't know how i had the courage i was 41 when i went to mkss in devdungri Then I went into that mud hut in '87. I was 
But I was also driven by two more things. One was this business of struggle. The other, which still there, very much part of my psyche, is an ascetic life. A minimalist life. A non-consumerist life. Living as simply as my neighbor. Existing on the simplest food. That has a special attraction and will always have a special attraction for me. And Dev Dungri gave me immense room for that. And I lived without any conflict born of privilege. There was no conflict in Dev Dungri. What peace. I didn't have to worry, does my neighbor have two saris, whether I have one sari? My neighbor have dal, do I have, I'm eating so much. None of that. My neighbor and I lived similarly. So there was an extraordinary comfort of being equal, at least in an economic sense. Because otherwise I was an unequal person because I was born with privilege in my head, which I could never get rid of. And what was the rule? One rupee a pao bar? You had a rule, no? The minimum wage was 14 rupees a day in Rajasthan, which is what we took as honorarium. And today it's 275 rupees a day honorarium. When I went to Rajasthan, it was 3 rupees a day. But look at the price rise. When I went to Rajasthan, 3 rupees a day was the wage, 3 rupees was a kilo of ghee, and 600 rupees was the price of silver. Now, ghee is 800 rupees a kilo, but we are given only 275 rupees a day as wages. Now you see the difference, how much more actually we should get in minimum wage to be on par with what we got in 1976, when I went there, 75, 76. And if I'm not mistaken, this was the first time in your life that you lived without water, running water. It had to be fetched from the well, without electricity. Thelonia, electricity came in the 90s to my house. I did not have electricity. There was kerosene lamps. I There was water which was fetched, but it was fetched in a bullock cart. And I didn't have to go and fetch it on my head, which I did in Devdungri. Devdungri, I learned how to carry water on my head without spilling the water from the pitcher. You taught me also. You used to have the smallest matka so that I could play this game of pretending to help with the water. Well, it was the learner matka. It was the learner matka, right? <laughs> yes. Out of this living in the village of Dev Dungri, how did the MKSS emerge? It would be great if you can talk about some of the people who stepped in and shaped that next phase. But... Also, what were the essential values which created the bonds that emerged? In some ways, since I travelled from one village to another village in Rajasthan, there was a continuum. I didn't travel far into Tamil Nadu or to Kerala, where there would have been a great change. I also went with a fair degree of comfort about the culture of the people, about having friends in Rajasthan. But it was also an alien place. Every 60 kilometers, the language changes, the dialect changes. So there were many things I simply did not understand then. I had to ask Shankar, what does it mean? What does that mean? I enjoyed the life, so I didn't mind having to go. We didn't have a toilet, so for two years we went behind the bush. That was for me the most difficult to accept, I think. But I was trained before I came to Dev Dungri by living with 
so many people in and around Delonia. Nevertheless, I found that difficult. And I think that was the most difficult thing for me to accept. But as a sort of a permanency, temporarily everything was okay. So living conditions were all right. There was the other issue of the rains and the snakes, the scorpions, and more the snakes than the scorpions, but also all the little worms that would come into the house. To, and we slept on the floor. So you had to put cotton wool in your ears. There are these centipedes, which they call kanshala, which have a habit of getting into your ears. So these were the little things which uh, you had to take precaution about. Otherwise, you know, the food or the other things, not issues. And of course, we walked everywhere, which was great. And then we began our conversations. But the most advantageous thing about going to Devduri was that we were surrounded by Shankar's relations. Shankar Singh, who had earlier worked in Thelonia in the communications unit, am I right? Shankar actually came to Thelonia in 1980, when I had already decided that I was going to quit. But we stayed together for three years and we became very good friends. Shankar is a phenomenon. He is one of the most extraordinary public communicators I have ever seen. In addition to any theatre group, he would have been... Karant actually said he should have been in proper theatre and that we were wrong in taking him away to where we did. But anyway, Shankar was a superb communicator with a terrific sense of humour. So he made friends everywhere and he and I became friends through arguments and differences. He used to come and say to me, Bunker is a very nice guy and you are so aggressive. So I said, really? Then I said, what do you mean? What am I aggressive about? And so we had our first differences and disagreements about women. And he was, of course, a totally traditional man. So he changed over so many arguments, so many <laughs> differences and so on. So that was the first thing. We didn't have a sort of everything tickety-boo relationship. We also had our differences. Anyway, I got interested and I always had a great interest in theatre. So I got interested in the communication section, when they first made the puppets, then they went for their training, then I met Tripurari Sharma. There's a whole new world opened up because of Shankar joining the SWRC. So we were friends. And friends, and so when we both went together to Jhabua to work with the tribals for a while, because one of our fellow colleagues from Tilunia had gone there, Cambridge. And Nikhil, at the age of 20, then joined us there. I still feel I my dream was to work there in the tribal area, but they wouldn't have me because I was a woman, because I was powerful, they didn't want me. So with a lot of dejection and sadness, I came back from Jabwa. Shanko also wanted to work in Jabwa, but they said they wouldn't pay him any money and he had a family, three children, so he couldn't continue there. The only person they would keep was Nikhil because he had came from an affluent family and they didn't need any money. But by the time Nikhil and Shankar had become very good friends and I had become very good friends with Nikhil as well. So we decided we would work together. One of the interesting things about at least my moving to Dev Dungri was that I was determined that I would only work with people with whom I had a great degree of comfort. Mental comfort. A kind of at a visceral level. Yes. So that you could agree, disagree, argue, fight, quarrel without losing the relationship. Because this work brings out all these issues. So you can't become enemies just because you disagree. 
In any case, I was brought up to believe in dissent in my own family, biological family. But I also lived constantly with dissent with Bunker. We never agreed. Since university days, we were known to not agree. And there were many people who were surprised when we got married. Because how it's persistently disagree on most things in life, how did you get married? So you can agree on fundamentals and disagree on everything else. That's also possible. You can agree, disagree on fundamentals and agree on everything else and then life is very much more difficult. So in any case, so we needed this group together. So that's how we came to Devdungri and Shankar's relations around and Anshi, his wife, refused to go anywhere but she was not comfortable. And I wanted to work in Rajasthan's tribal belt but she would not move even that 150 kilometers. So we settled down in Devdungri because we settled in Shankar's sister's cousin's house. It was designed in a manner which was not comfortable to us. So there were no windows in the cottage, in the hut. There were so many chulas so we had to remove all those earthen stoves. We had to make the two goat sheds were made into the kitchen. One goat shed was made into a bathroom. So all that construction had to take place. And the division of labor was that I cooked and they all worked because I could not lift stones and all of that. They did all that. So we actually constructed a bit of this refurnished, refurbished madat ourselves. Jeannie Srivastava, very well-known woman, activist in Rajasthan, social worker. She told me, you're indulging yourself. She said, you should go where you can reach far larger number of people. What do you mean by withdrawing into a village hut and living this romantic life? And we also had a goat, by the way, by that time. So Ginny was absolutely shocked. She said, you know, you should have been going to a much larger frame. Why are you shrinking into this little one? You live a romantic life, you'll fetch your own water, you'll cook your own food, you'll have a goat. Then what? I said, then if we fail, we come home. Mr. Banke, we will go home. But I must try it out once. By that time, Nikhil was still doing law, so he used to keep going off to Delhi to give his exams. And Shankar and I had were neck deep in work in two months. We were organizing people to work for, ask for work and for wages. And of course, this usual thing, they were wondering why we had come there. So were we people that come to mine? Were we people coming to look for labor? We were contractors. What were we? They could not make out. And the people who lorded over us <laughs> was the neighbor who was, a, you know, a Jawan. He thought he was superior to us because he had more furniture in his house than we had. <laughs> it was really interesting to see how superiority gets established. And there was so much animosity. And because we opened up our kitchen to Dalits, every day there was a fight. And because Shankar and Nikhil went to fetch water on their heads, Anshi used to get it from them. You're a useless woman. You make your husband get water on the head. Why don't you get water on the head? Kamu went to the village well, the Shankar's daughter. She was about 12. And she fetched water, but she couldn't lift the pot to her head. So the gentleman who owned the well, Nagodaji, was a Dalit. So the whole village used to take the water from the Dalit well, but he couldn't touch their pots. Amazing. So because she made him lift the pot, they came in hordes. Break the pot, don't drink the water. We had a huge row with them. Finally, I said to them, if you persist, I'm going to the neighboring town, Beam, and I'm going to register a case against you for it. Under the Atrocities Act, you get bail in Jodhpur because you can't get bail locally. Then they went. Then slowly, 
the fact that this would be an open kitchen. Then they all attacked Shankar's cousin for giving this house to Shankar. Actually, I tell people that you talk about inequality, untouchability in a theoretical sense. When if you live in a campus, it's half theory. But when you live in a village, it's there every minute of the day. Somewhere or the other, it surfaces. And I think it was extremely important for our political work that we'd lived there. Aruna, I think one of the other things that had a big effect was that even when known to be powerful people came to that house, Anil Bodia or maybe the local collector or somebody, they washed their own vessels. That nobody was exempted from that domestic practice of everybody washing their own dishes. Did this have a positive and creative effect or did this also raise resentments? This raised more resentment with the visitor than with the local people. Local people might have wondered, but many of them are cooks. They are all people who work in these dhabas. Migration from Dungri area, large numbers go and work. Chunni Singh, who went from us, used to wash dishes for so many years. So washing dishes was not considered a woman's job. It was considered the one who was least power did the washing. That's all. It was not considered a woman's job. But for those who came, it was effrontery. It was lack of courtesy that you make your guest wash the vessels and all that. So I always said that you're not washing the cook vessels in which we cook. You're only washing your own plate and your glass, the tumbler in which you drink. That's all. Or your katori. You're not going beyond that. But that you will have to do. Professor Hanumantra washed it when he came as member planning commission. So it was not just local officials, yeah. In 1990, Roy, along with Nikhil Day and Shankar Singh, founded the MKSS, working for the minimum wage struggle to improve social forestry programs and fighting for the transparency and accountability of government schemes. Roy was central to the Right to Information movement through the National Campaign for the People's Right to Information, or NCPRI, that resulted in the Right to Information Act in 2005. She has also been an instrumental part of the campaigns for the Right to Work, or NREGA, and the Right to Food. So from all of this bubbling, dynamism, how did that first May 1990 come about when MKSS was formally launched? Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangatha. There were two important struggles which made people realize that if they get together, and form an organization, their bargaining power increases exponentially. The first struggle was about minimum wages on a work site, in which Chunibai and Bhavar then filed a case which went on and finally we won it many years later. But the second and more powerful one was the demand for forest land, allotting a social forest. Social forestry used to be a program where they allotted government pasture land for developing into a social forest. And Lal Singh and Tej Singh Ji, these two extraordinary men and with uh, Buriya and Kaki Mba, their two women in that village, we managed to mobilize the entire village to oppose one of the most copybook bad characters I have ever come across, Hari Singh of Tal. Hari Singh was the son of a local Thakur, which is a local landlord. And that Thakur 
had burnt the national flag when we became independent. For what reason he did that, we don't know. But Hari Singh, who was the son of that man, was a terror. He was a complete, he was like the chap in Shole. I mean, literally like the chap in Shole. So he terrorized women, he terrorized the people, he terrorized everyone in Sohangarh. The Sohangarh people were fed up. Like if they graze their cows in the pasture, the government pasture land, they had to give him half the milk, half the ghee. If they took, you know, clay from the pond, then they had to deliver half the clay in his house. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was complete and total oppression. So Lal Singh decided that he needed to be opposed. And Lal Singh and Tej Singh was far senior to Tej Singh Ji. So we decided that we have to take this up. So MKSS designed this social forestry program so that we would, Sohangarh would ask for 25 hectares of land to grow social forestry. I don't think my words can capture the depth and the horror and the violence, potential violence of that entire event. Even the people who join us today can just imagine it, but they can't feel the extent of it. So for two years we battled. And he threatened to have me rape. He did actually have Shankar Nikhil beaten up. Many things happened in the course of that. He came with guns when we were allotted the land. And the government, of course, allotted the land because we were well known to government. They allotted the land. We created a women's organization strategically because Rajput women never go out to work. So we said, Thakur's, Hari Singh's wives and children will never come there. So we created a women's organization. And then we also built this extraordinary boundary wall. And then we grew a very good forest. Now, But the whole thing made people realize that we have to get together. So it was not an idea that was born from the heads of three people who went and settled there, but from the actual people, people who actually struggled, who realized that unless we get together and form a unit, our bargaining power is zero. That's why the Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangatan debated on for over a year and the name was given by local people. We wanted to call it Mazdoor Kisan Morcha or something. They said, no, no, Morcha, Porcha, our word is not. We have to call it Sangatan. And Shakti. Shakti must come in because we are fighting for power. So Shakti must come in. So that's why Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangatan. What preceded the first May 1990 when we actually declared the organization. So we chose Bheem which was the local Kaspa town. And in the open space that they have for public meetings, we went there and declared it. There began our history. I think the first struggle was for full minimum wage to be paid in the famine relief works. The Jawahar Rozgar Yojana, that used to be a program run by the government where they used to give some amount of work for people without employment. Okay. Not just the famine relief works. There was also famine relief works. There was also JRY. And so, from minimum wages to the right to information, what was the process? Because I know that there was a connection, because it was in the process of doing the minimum wage work that some of these issues came to the fore. Let's put it like this, that the minimum wage history for me goes back to Northeast's great battle for minimum wages and my initial years. So, minimum wage... Battle was an older battle. Information was also a somewhat semi-formed earlier idea. And, but the sharpness of this information demand came because of repeated asking for things 
from the local government and not receiving it under the pretext that they are covered by the Official Secrets Act. BPL list we could not get. We asked for simple information would not be given. And we knew it, that they don't give it. But this sharpened the debate. And because on every work site, when we asked for payment of wages, they would say, you did not work. And we would say, produce the register. And they would say, we can't show you the register because it's a secret document. We can't produce the bill and voucher because it's a secret document. And we sat on two fast to death. Dharnas. And they were massive. The first one, the collector came and told us he'd give us our minimum wage, we got up. The second one shook the state government. Because we were just five of us representing five districts who sat there to panchayat elections. Every village they went to, people said, you give us information or go home. Because the chief minister, because of fear, had made a statement that he would give us the right to information and he didn't give it later on. But at this time, it was already an issue. It had become an issue. So then it had become hugely public, this issue. And when we sat on the second dhanna, government stopped a hundred crores of an installment that was due for JRY because they paid 95 paisa a day in one worksite. Either you don't work or you get wages. What is 95 paisa a day? So unearthing all this information had a phenomenal impact on them. And we also realized that information at many levels was necessary. And even in the fight for Sohangarh, for the land, Hari Singh would have that particular number of that particular land not put up for allotment. So if information can be used negatively, information has to be used positively. So there was no question. So it was a growing awareness. When we sat in that mud, earthen angan of our house, when we were talking about we can't do another fast unto death. We won that battle, by the way. No, but it was very scary. It was, yeah, they came and it picked us up at midnight and, and they did all sorts of things with us. And they didn't beat us up, just short of beating us up. They did everything. So, when we discussed post that, and how many times will we start, sit on fast unto death? Then Mohanji and all of us were there, but I think it was Mohanji who said, if that information doesn't come out, we'll always be liars. To prove the truth of our statements, we have to get that information out. And I like the way he said it. He didn't say that we want our demands, you know, met. He said the truth of the statement must be met. And then, of course, it grew into a huge demand. But this very evocative slogan, Hamara Paisa, Hamara Hisab, where did that come from? Because it puts the whole thing in a nutshell. Well, this thing evolved. We had these Jansun Vais in which we asked for information. It all began with the Janavad public hearing. The Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangathan, MKSS, held another of its Jan Sunwais on development works in Janavad Panchayat, Kumbalgarh Block, Raj Saman District, in April 2001. An embezzlement of 70 lakh rupees was established by the government audit team, which investigated the expenditure and works after the Jan Sunwai. 
we had four demands all panchayat records must be out in the open that there must be accountability fixed for people who do not exercise their obligation then there must be public accounting which we call social audit and then we said we want redressal of all the amounts now when this thing grew and government still didn't respond and we said the chief minister had made a statement in the assembly saying that transparency of records would be panchayat records would be transparent so then we asked for that to be implemented so the biavar dharna in 1996 when we sat in biavar we are by the way crowd funded we don't take any funding from anywhere so crowd funded so we went to 300 villages saying that will you give some of your time and 4 kilos from each family to support us to the dharna because we have to eat out there so when that came and we did the dharna at that time we got all of india involved because prabhas joshi came nikhil chakravarti came kuldeep nayar came ajit bhattacharjee came then we had medha kam swami agnivesh kam so many people came so it became a national event biavar 1996 after that we framed the law then prabhas joshi argued that and harsh harsh was also there harsh mandar and they both argued that a legal instrument was very necessary to overrule the official secrets act and for that they went and parleyed with the press council of india justice savant was then chair justice savant agreed that they would oversee the first draft of the rti act meanwhile because of harsh we had already gone to the academy and the first draft had kind of roughly been prepared one clause has come to us till today when we were wondering what would be the positive list and the negative list nc saxena was then director just came and said when we had argued ourselves sick we couldn't form the right what we couldn't see he came and said why what your representative can see you can see you're the sovereign so whatever member of parliament or the member of the legislative assembly can see you can see the sad simple is that which is a formulation there in the law even today when we took the first draft for presentation to the world you know to the nation in a manner of speaking there was a huge press conference ik gujral vp singh justice savant the whole lot of others lawyers editors etc were there and from mkss four or five of us or six of us went one of them was sushila and she was asked by a journalist how much have you studied she said up to the fourth class so he said what are you doing here how can you do anything for it look at these people they can't get the law and you can get it so she stood up straight and she said when i send my son with 10 rupees to the bazaar and he comes back i take his accounts the government spends billions of rupees in my name won't i ask for accounts our money our accounts hamara paisa hamara hisab in hindi she said ye arbo kharbo rupaye kharch karte hain inse hisab nahi lenge kya ye hamara paisa hai hamara hisab beautiful at the same time there was a challenge of how to keep this growing network and organization together in ways that are internally democratic also and we all know that the moment you go from say 5 10 people to 50 people and to 200 people those issues of maintaining an internal democracy and especially in your context where there was so much emphasis on being non hierarchical how did you what were some of the creative and both difficult elements of this dynamic structurally the audit process the social audit process brought in 
by the NKSS has become now a part of structural governance, which is uh, ineffective, which is partly successful, partly a failure, somewhere very successful, depending on the government, depending on all that. But we also said there are three forms of things. One is the social audit, which is a mandated form of audit done by the government. But we said there's also something called a jansunvai. When people demand that there should be an audit of things that are going wrong in their area, it's democratically obligatory for a state to conduct an inquiry publicly. But we also said, finally, that there should be a transparency meeting where we ourselves disclose what we are doing to people, which we did as the shops have a disclosure meeting. We all have disclosure meetings in which we lay our accounts on the table for people to see so that they know what we are doing. And that also has been an important thing. And some NGOs like SWRC Thelonia has done it, has had disclosure meetings, but not too many. One during the time when they were accused of and the police and the authorities went after them because they decided to settle my scores by attacking Bunker in 97. So 1997. So that kind of thing has happened. No, but that's what is very important to convey to future generations. How does that happen? Because there are disagreements in any group. So how do you resolve them without any one set of people throwing their weight around? There are disagreements possible on policy and on opinions. In terms of finances, there is no disagreement possible. It is completely a non-negotiable area. That should be transparent. Now, whether you agree on whether that money should be spent there or not there is your private business. But that it has been spent is public information and that it must be out there in the open. To jump many years after Jan Suchna portal, which the government of Rajasthan has now put out, they've given it. The second government to do it has been the Karnataka government. Where 150 departments of the government have under the right to information law, section 4 of the right to information law, made their information public in real time. I think, I don't know how many crore people have accessed the Jansuchna portal and how many crores have downloaded information from the Jansuchna portal. And in real time, you know whether your ration shop has given someone ration in your name or not. It's vital for the poor. So that culture has come in. The NGOs have not been so forthcoming. But they also have to now mandatorily put forward at least their audited statements on websites yeah. so that everyone can see it. So I think the culture has changed. And basically, what is it, Rajni? It's basically the right to ask a question. And that has impacted, brought violence, killed 100 of us or more. 100 information seekers have been killed, but it still continues as strong as ever. Amra Ram, just recently in a place called Barmer in Rajasthan, his legs were broken just because he asked questions about NREGS spending just six months ago. But it has not stopped him. He comes on a stretcher to our meetings to say information must be given. It's the determination somewhere to get that out because it doesn't serve my purpose alone. It serves the purpose of many other people and of something called development, something called progress, something called benefits, something called welfare, something called humanity. That's somewhere struck a chord. And that's why I think and the right to information has been, though it began with a poor people's issue, it has gone across the board to so many different kinds of institutions and sectors. So I think, strangely enough, I have met people who don't know me, who are from the corporate world, 
who come to me and say that you know you may not agree with us but you know the right information has supported us as well so i said i why should i disagree with you always areas of agreement and disagreement that we agree on something is the beginning of a conversation so let's start conversing throughout her life aruna's focus has been on working collectively it's what she believes is necessary to create the kind of change she's interested in in 2000 aruna was awarded the raymond magsaysay award for community leadership I want to step aside for a minute and address an issue that I know you have struggled with a lot which is this very delicate balance of being the first among equals because I remember when you were going to be given the Magsaysay award how much you agonized about whether it was at all correct for you to accept the award when the work was done as a group I know you had similar agony in accepting when sonia gandhi invited you to be a member of the nac and we've had this discussion many times but for the purposes of this exercise can you share how you have resolved that dilemma because you are in able to be in certain positions and play certain roles that everybody can't and so how have you processed that it's resolved and unresolved it's a statement that the mkss and i and all of us make but despite that the maxsi people accepted that they would do it from the next award onwards because they wouldn't accept it in my case because they said it was predecided but i would say to their credit that carmen sita abelia who was the general secretary came and spent two nights in devdungri after the award and she also wanted to go to chunni singh's village but she couldn't and the chunni singh who accompanied me to manila was totally accepted by them usually husbands go this husband was not going or you have some angrezi bolne walas going but chunni singh was totally i think you should describe him chunni singh is one of the most remarkable people i've met who has an innate sense of equality he just doesn't believe is not equal to anyone else Jessica studied up to class 2 informally has washed dishes from the age of 4 in dabas has been a kind of robin hood in his fighting for workers rights in baroda gone back to farm on his own land and if chunni singh is with you you have 100 people with you in terms of courage and integrity the remarkable person very outspoken often very rude it was a decision as to who would go with me So Nikhil and Shankar said they were not going. So who else would go? So in this discussion that took for a day or two for us to decide on who would go, finally they said either Lal Singh or Chunni Singh should go. Lal Singh hates traveling, so he said I am not going. So it was Chunni Singh. When Chunni Singh went to get his passport, uh, some documents from the STO's office, that fellow, the Tessildar called ten people and they all laughed at Chunni Singh. अरे ये जाएगा, देखो, इसको देखो थोड़ा, ये जाएगा अभी. क्या अवार्ड लेने जा रहा है टू जाएगा लाइक दैट सो एनी वे चुनी सिंह से तुम्हें क्या जाता है मैं जाऊंगा यू नो ही आंसर दैम बट ही हैड टू बी क्लोज ही हैड टू बी फर्बिश एंड एवरीथिंग एंड फाइनली ही वेट विथ मी चुनी सिंह वुड नेवर एक्सेप्ट दैट ही डिड नॉट नो एनीथिंग दिस आई थिंक इफ यू ऑल ऑफ अस नो सो वेन वी फर्स्ट लैंड इट दिस बैंकुट 
And even I was a little worried because there were so many knives and forks. And I thought, God, which one goes first, you know? So he said to me in Hindi, he said, kya ho I said, Pata nahi, whatever I do, you do. He said, Main meat nahi khaunga. I said, Theek hai, I also won't eat meat, so you won't eat what I don't eat. He ate with so much elegance. I was shocked. He was absolutely elegant. He did not mismanage his cutlery. He did not behave with any kind of lack of decorum. And he managed, by the time we left, a, a fried egg on toast without spilling any of the egg on himself. I thought he was marvelous. So just to show what kind of presuppositions we all have. But Shunni Singh went there and they all liked him very much. The arrangement was that wherever we had to talk, I talked. Questions and answers, Shunni Singh answered. 80% of the answers were Shunni Singh, translated into Hindi for him. And he stunned them because he was so brilliant. So actually, one of them said, we thought you were the Air India Maharaja when you turned up. Because you were wearing the safa and the dhoti and the usual Rajasthani dress which he went. So Chunni Singh is a remarkable man. He still continues to be a remarkable man. He doesn't want to take even an honorarium. He doesn't take money from anybody. He wants to retain his independence to such a degree that he would rather just eat the minimum that he can and live the way he does rather than be anyone's servant. He's an amazing human being. And the NSC experience? We've received, by the way, many awards in which I've been singled out. Whereas I've made all these statements, but we have not been able to really fight the system, unfortunately. And I'm very happy to say that in the MKSs, I'm only one of many. That, of course, is the balance that I really need. The NEC, I went to every institution and every campaign I was a member of, including NAPM. NAPM had a huge debate. There was a division. Half said I should, half said I shouldn't. Or rather, maybe 60-40. But it was Medha's vote that made me go. She said, no, Aruna must go because if she goes in, she will at least take our voice in. and She must go. And if Aruna goes, she's accountable to us. So we can make her say. The National Advisory Council was actually set up by the UPA 1 because they made a set of promises to the people of India, which was itself remarkable, which was because it was a left and Congress and many other progressive parties alliance. It was called the National Common Minimum Program, which they made huge promises to the people so that they would be, in a sense, be accountable. The National Advisory Council was set up to monitor the National Common Minimum Program, which was again a remarkably progressive democratic step. But nevertheless, to be a member of the NAC with Sonia Gandhi as the chair was a difficult proposition. I remember, again, the whole process of approvals had to be got. And I remember going and meeting Mrs. Gandhi before I became a member to say two things to her. That I would speak my mind out and I would disagree with her or with the Congress government or with the UPA. Would she allow that? And she said yes. It's on that basis that I joined the NAC. And I always feel that is a remarkable difference. I carried so many of their petitions, their proposals, the Land Acquisition Act ideas and the, the proposals. I, we organized, when I was in the NAC, we organized so many public consultations on it, which were all possible because of Jean-Dres, me, so many others being members of the NAC. One, NAC two had much larger representation. When you look both at the phase where you were there and then even later, what would you say on the whole 
is your assessment of the limitations of such a exercise of bringing in different elements of samaj and civil society and other elements in even the private sector and trying to come up with these kinds of basically it was a platform i think for dialogue between all these various dimensions for the common good so what were both the limitations that came to the fore and what did against all odds get achieved i think you know what they failed to do despite the national campaign for people's right to information persisting that they do but that they fail to create it as a pre-legislative platform for looking at policy and legislation and allowing participation for people's voices to be heard which is what in essence it was but they did not make it into a statutory body which would perforce have to do it for every legislation that came thereafter that was its i think failure because it failed to define itself but the asset was that by having senior members of government within its formation it was able to pull in the kind of power that people's voices never can pull in access to government secretaries access to ministers access to prime minister all that became possible not that we pushed them into anything but that we could at least sit as reasonable equals to argue out our point of view that became possible and sonia gandhi was a good chair she allowed us to speak she allowed us to argue and fight without interference she listened more than she talked of course the decisions were always hers as well in the end she didn't she was not a weak person she took her decisions but she never disallowed us our freedom to argue and disagree with her or with each other they were they reflected the public realm and in the case of the rti and the mgnrga without political will these laws would not have got framed least and food security also all these rights based legislations by the time the second nac came there was resistance building up and already had built up from bureaucrats from political power bases from so many people but in the first nac took the bureaucracy by surprise because we had a formulated law which they truncated but yet in standing committee we were able to change it that allowed the whole process to go through even in allowing the parliamentary procedures to go through or the process to go through and mandated i think the laws were greatly benefited so i think that the creation of the nac did help in many including the land acquisition law to a great degree but then it got truncated but many of these rights based laws would not have been possible without this kind of platform and that platform facilitated it what is now the scenario going forward how does it look today say if you visualize the next 20 years i can't visualize the next 20 years i would like to just look at myself today and i feel that the public discourse has been muddied there was a certain degree of clarity which has gone completely haywire because every time you raise real issue or a critical issue before it can get even completely articulated it's muddied so what happens is that instead of discussing the real issue you are fighting a defensive battle about a subset i think what our younger generation must understand is to really separate the critical issues 
from the sub-issues and subsets of issues which are thrown in to divert our attention. We must keep absolutely to the basic questions and there are some very basic questions. You can call me old-fashioned, you can call me anything, but I cannot go away from that this India that I know of and I've lived through has been what it is because of the Indian constitution. Dr. Ambedkar was very worried even after giving the constitution to us and said that only if the nation is beyond the party, the party or politics becomes more important than the nation, India is finished. Brother Krishnan said, was not exactly a radical person in terms of politics. He was more on the conservative side. But even he said, if we get involved in caste and creed and all those regressive and you know regressive kinds of concepts that exist in this country, we are ruined. At the time of independence, we had the option of becoming a theocratic state. We took the option to be a secular state because of the nature of the country that's called India. If you deny its secularity, and if you deny its basic right to be freedom to express dissent, dissent, disagreement, if you disallow the right to freedom of expression, then this country cannot last. I think this is a firm faith and a belief that I have, especially since in India I do not belong to one culture. I'm a Tamilian who has lived in North India, who's married a Bengali, and I see even within the variations of these three broad formations, I see so many differences. How will you contain it unless you have these principles which are there in the preamble to the constitution and the chapter on fundamental rights? We deny them and in one sense we deny India. Aruna, where in this does the digital revolution fit in? Because in many ways, theoretically, the digital age makes information so much more accessible. But is it? Do you see the digital age facilitating information democracy? Digitalism or digitalization or digital world or the whatever you, technology, whatever you call it, is neutral. But its use can make it the best or the worst thing that has ever happened to mankind, humankind. Today, I think digitalization is seen by those who want to centralize power as one of the most potent weapons for impunity, for non-accountability, for misrepresentation, and for disallowing people access. For instance, every time you talk about digitalization, corruption comes in as the issue on which you're going to really bring down corruption. Has it as corrupt as we've always been in rural India, despite digitalization? The only people who have been excluded are the people who have no thumbprints, who don't know how to access it because there's no internet in their area. There isn't. But it doesn't deal with corruption. We need digitalization. Of course, we need digitalization for a number of things. But we also must understand its limitations. And we must understand that it has become an accessory to power. Not the dissemination of power, but the centralization of power. Then it's something else. So we have to see. That's why the Jansuchna portal, which I mentioned, was so important for us. Because when Rajasthan government said they're going to have a digital dialogue, we said you have the dialogue with us first. Let us be the first ones to decide how to use a digital platform. You will do it for us. You will put section 4 on the digital platform. You will not go doing something that we don't want. 
So we bargained and we got this. And it's an important thing because it's a place, it is a field in which you fight for power now. So whether it's power for the people or power for the controllers of people is an issue. So in closing, let us look at the School for Democracy. It's your investment in the future. And I find it fascinating that the School for Democracy is serving as a platform both for very privileged youth of the metropolitan areas. You know, I think you have many law colleges that send their entire class for a week or 10 days to School for Democracy. And it is a place where village level youth are gathering uh, for various kinds of camps and workshops. So, two dimensions here. The first one is, what are you seeing in the youth, aspirations of the youth? What are you, what are you, many different aspects of the aspirations of the youth? And the other is, what is this showing you or either making you hopeful or not hopeful about the future of democracy? Can you talk about youth as if it's one consolidated mass of people with one idea? It isn't. So, what I think would be right to say is that youth has become aspirational in a manner in which we were not. The aspirations are now all towards material well-being, which the market has contributed heavily towards. Advertising, jingles, this and that and the other. There's so many things, I won't go into it. So aspirations are all very materialistic. So the idea of contribution would only be in terms of how much money you generate. It's not in terms of how much value you generate in terms of benefit to humankind. That you don't think of. So that's one big change, I think, which has come to be. The other one is that competitiveness has reduced the collective to individuals now. It's become because of the competitiveness that has come in as a kind of idea and as a value. It's individual versus the collective now because the collective idea itself is being derailed slowly. And democracy is collectivism. So to that extent, I think democracy is going to be weakened because we bring in the whole notion of the individual benefits, individual aspirations, individual homes, individual everything. And the entire system is now catering to that. So whether you see the market economy, we all need markets. The point is, how do you run the markets? It's not a question of not needing the market. That's an absurd situation. Nobody, can, None of us can live without a market. The idea is, how should the market be run? Who gets to regulate it and who gets the benefits of it? And on what value systems? But Arora, in the School for Democracy interactions with young people, what are some of the signs of hope that you're seeing? Because when they do come to the School for Democracy, in a sense, you're introducing them or if they already are familiar with it, you're reaffirming the value of collective action. So what are some of the signs of hope or creativity that you're seeing in these interactions? I... Again, do not want to speak only about the youth. The point is that many people have been denied access to both information and knowledge. The schooling system has failed because it only teaches you the syllabus. If it teaches you anything at all, even that it may not teach. Families have stopped talking narratives and stories to their children. The television has made inroads into families. 
So the time the family would have sat around talking about what happened or this or that is now taken over by the television. So you have generations of young people starved of any kind of historical knowledge apart from what is fed into them. There is no information without the desire to indoctrinate in the public domain now. What they really need to know is the information and knowledge that has come down or is currently popular, what do various things mean, just to understand what's happening so that they can make informed choices. They are not making informed choices today. They are making choices which are preordained by people. They need to make informed choices. And the School for Democracy is trying to help through a pedagogy of participation and interaction and debate and disagreement and consensus as to how you really reach that kind of place where you make informed choices. So in closing, Aruna, what are your dreams? What is keeping you, what shall we say, at your post? Ultimately, I have to live with myself. And I can't live out someone else's truth. I have to live out my own truth. And then I have to live it out in a manner in which it is of use to a body of human beings. So whatever structure gives me that facility, there I go. And there I am. But I can't speak someone else's truth. And that is what is keeping me on. And I hope that one day there will be an understanding of where truth lies in this whole mess of information and media and social media and speculations that surround us today that the truth should finally find its own balance and its meaning. Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekaniphilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode and thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.